you know, what's interesting, and I think I'm not alone here in this private equity or venture capital world is you can do a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of due diligence, a lot of asking around, a lot of vetting of those uh, managers, of those uh, really entrepreneurs or executives that are running these organizations. And, and every time you invest, it's because you get comfortable. You think you've done, you've checked all the boxes and there are always surprises. Always. So uh, that that is the most important thing. And even though that's the one that you spend the most time on, it still surprises you often, uh, more, more times than you would like every time that happens. Welcome to this episode of The Climb. My name is Michael Moore, joined with my co-host, Bob Wierma. And today we are joined by Hugo Del Pazzo, a good friend of mine met here in Fort Worth on the golf course. And most of the time, I've got a, a good preset story to tell about somebody uh, in this intro. But with Hugo, he's he's like this fine wine that he brought in. I mean, it just it gets more interesting as you enjoy every gulp. So get ready for this one. It's going to be a wild ride. And Hugo, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Hugo. Thank you both. We're excited to have you. So Hugo, I with your upbringing with all of your interests, with your private equity background, with your time with Klein Heinz, and so I want to jump in on that. Your pursuit of, in my opinion, some of the best wine I've ever drank. I don't know really where to start yet, but let's uh, let's just start at the at the beginnings in in Mexico City and and just tell us what that was like growing up there. Yeah, it was great. Um, uh, grew up in Mexico City. Well, was born in Mexico City, and I grew up in a suburb of Mexico City known as Toluca. It happens to be a sister city of Fort Worth. That's right. I learned that when I when I came here. And very similar uh, to Fort Worth in, in size and in kind of, even though it's a relatively big city, uh, it has a small town feel to it where everybody knows each other. And yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was great growing up. Uh, with very close friends that are still lifelong friends, similar to what you see here in Fort Worth, where the parents know each other and then the kids get to know each other and become lifelong friends. Went to school there, luckily went to a bilingual school that uh, allowed me to learn English from an early age. Yeah, and then I went uh, actually through college uh, also to, and started in Toluca at Tech de Monterrey at the local campus. I was eager to get on the business world, so started uh, working while I was in college, really started working before college, just figuring out a way to make some extra money and travel and and do fun things in life. That entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, Mm -hmm. kicked in early. I always wanted to live in Mexico City, and and many of my friends went to school, to university in Mexico City, but my dad said, nope, uh, you're staying here. And... And a great problem, right? At a great uh, university, take the Monterey, but I I was a rebel. So I (laughs) kind of reveled. And uh, (laughs) as soon as I could, I I moved into Mexico City uh, to live with a friend uh, and away from home. And uh, at that point, I had already, I had a couple of years of college uh, at Tech de Monterrey. So I reverse commuted to my hometown to go to school. And then I would go to work in Mexico City during college. I uh, worked for a construction, uh, residential construction company that uh, grew incredibly fast. We, when I first joined the company, uh, we were building 60 homes a year. And, and by the time I left to go to business school, we were in the thousands wow. of, of homes a year, entry-level homes, uh, uh, 4,000 homes that year that I left. So uh, quite substantial. I thought I had it all figured out. I had saved a little bit of money for college. I wanted to come to business school in the United States. Uh, and in 1994, I went from having 100% of my room tuition and board saved to having less than 50% because the peso devalued. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I wanted to get married. And I basically said, okay, I can't, I can't wait until my purchasing power <laughs> catches up to where it was a month ago. So I started business school in Mexico City at the, it's known as the MIT of Mexico. It's a university called ITAM, ITAM, uh, knowing that I could transfer and finish my business school studies in the U.S. So um, I did that in the evening program while I was still working. And then I finished, I transferred over to UC Berkeley and uh, transferred over to the MBA program there. When I finished business school, 
I had an opportunity to join a practice uh, of Ernst & Young that does investment banking and corporate finance, restructuring, uh, capital raising, strategic management consulting for middle market companies in Mexico. And uh, and it was great. It was a great way to put my, my experience to work. That's where I met my business partner, Rafa Garza. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we want, eventually we wanted to grow really what we saw a lot of interesting business opportunities uh, that we were an advisor on. And we said, man, it'd be a lot funner to be on the, on the principal investor side rather than <laughs> just the advisor. So, <laughs> right. so, and this is back in the late 1990s, dot com. I mean, companies were raising money left and right. Uh, new funds were getting funded. Anyway, I could go into a lot of stories there. We, we worked from literally, while I was with Ernst & Young, we literally worked from dot-com startups uh, that had very little money from the founder uh, to well-capitalized startups to selling a Pacific group of airports to international conglomerate of, uh, of business people. So very varied, very varied um, opportunities or, or engagements that I was involved with, which was great. Mexico was still riding high on the coattails of the original NAFTA that has mm-hmm. recently been uh, renamed. So we, we saw a lot of transactions uh, cross-border, Mexican companies moving into Mexico, Mexican companies moving to the U.S. So that gave me a nice international investment experience. Anyway, so we, we started looking for a way to create, initially create a venture capital fund inside of Ernst & Young. At that time, these big four or big six at the time were selling the consulting practices. We're trying to, to um, kind of create these China walls between their audit and tax and uh, other services. And so it wasn't a good time for us to do it inside of Ernst & Young, which um, turned out to be a blessing. So we we started seeking outside investors to sponsor us. And one of them uh, is the Fort Worth guy. So you mentioned Klein Hans uh, earlier today and, uh, and, and John was investing he's always had a global macro investment approach and he understood the misallocations of capital and he liked latin america investing in latin america and so to make a long story short there he uh, he became our our partner and seed sponsor for for the fund and uh yeah that was in 2000 i told my father-in-law we had just gotten married in 1999 i told him well we we're gonna go to live to Texas for a couple of years, maybe maybe two or four, and then uh, we will come back. And that was 21 years ago. And he does not, <laughs> he does not forget that I, that I said that. So Hugo, before we jump into the career side, because it'll easily take up an hour plus, we'll probably have to bring you back. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I certainly picked up on at a young age, traveling down to Mexico, uh, with my family in border towns when that was a safe thing to do. Um, And then later on in, in Spain as a semester abroad, and then in further down in Central American in different business pursuits I had post-college was like this, this just immense sense of culture of where you're from and, and who you are and who your family is and how that defines you. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? growing up in Mexico, you know, and then and it says your eyes started to paint the picture for the audience, turning north and thinking about coming to the U.S. Like, how did that all work? Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, Mexico is uh, like the U.S. It's very uh, diverse. Uh, you have people from all over the world that at some point have either colonized or become part of the of the Mexico. So Mexico is a, it's a mosaic of cultures. Mm-hmm. but significantly influenced by Spanish uh, culture because it was a colony of Spain right. for hundreds of years. So for instance, my my family on my mother's side is from Northern Spain, but my father's side is from Northern Italy. Immigrants, my wife's family is from Lebanon. And and so, yeah, that, that mosaic and that confluence of, uh, of cultures is the Mexican culture, uh, even though you have very native customs uh, in some parts of Mexico. The the majority of Mexico is, uh, again, like the U.S., uh, it's just a, a mosaic of other cultures from other parts of the world. But the Spanish influence definitely had a relevant point in my, in my culture. Um, the, from the food that we eat, uh, I see it, I, I found it later that I'm like, well, this is similar to stuff I, we would eat 
uh, on Sunday, and it happened to be a Spanish plate. But that, again, that's my my maternal influence. And then, as, as it relates to looking up north, uh, it was it was more realizing that there was an opportunity to, to the world became smaller with in, international trade agreements and World Trade Organization and and Mexico joining that in the 1990s. So from a business standpoint, initially the, the opportunity was, or the vision was, let's, let's capitalize on these uh, fast-growing country, Mexico, um, and, and companies doing business on both sides of the border, uh, having access to cheaper labor, uh, in Mexico, just to use uh, lightly, uh, mm-hmm. there were there are many other uh, opportunities of doing business on both sides of the border, and and but at the same time you have the capital access in the United States, so it was a way to okay let's let's access capital in the U.S. and let's let's work with companies that can become more efficient, grow, at the same time pursue the Mexican consumer demographic growth. Uh, Growing middle class, blah blah blah. So that was that was the thesis early on, uh, where, where I started looking at, at looking up north, and then once we established here in Texas, uh, you start looking south, and and probably in two thousand six, right around two thousand six, we we were still looking for opportunities in Mexico, and and what I realized was well, there's this tremendous consumer tremendous in, in terms of number and purchasing power, which is the Hispanic or Latin consumer that lives in the United States. And and the more we started looking at it, we're like, well, why, why are we looking south of the border if we can basically service or invest in companies that service that consumer north of the border in the United States and don't have currency risk, don't have legal risk of, of uh, emerging market, don't have uh, country risk, have more access to capital, more efficient capital markets, etc. So at that point, we decided to raise a fund specifically to invest in companies that could benefit from the Hispanic opportunity in the United States. Hmm. And that was great. That was great for, for several years. Um, we, we seeded companies, we invested in companies, small, medium, not quite large, but I think we we capitalized the bank. That was about three hundred sixty million in assets, so relatively small mm-hmm. for for the financial uh, world, financial industry. And yeah, just uh, we just started to focus more on the Hispanic consumer or Mexican consumer, since it's sixty eight percent of the Hispanic population in the United States that was living here. Wow! Long and was answer. was no, that's that's great. Was that under the Guidance, tutelage, support of Kleinheinz at the time, or was that pre or post your your relationship there? We were officing under the same roof, but John managed the hedge fund, uh, long short global macro, uh, public securities type deal. We we helped him in some things, and it relates to private equity. But we were, even though we were officing under the same roof, even though he was a part of the GP, uh, one of our investors. Um, it was, uh, you know, we were pretty much independent and yeah, does yeah, that answer your question? That, that absolutely. And just for, for Bob's reference and also for, um, our listeners, we don't have to spend too much time on it. Just some highlights, like, cause you were a part of it. Give, give a little insight into early on when you got on with Klein Heinz and just what that whole world looked like. Cause it's a, not a lot of people know about it coming from Fort Worth, Texas, but it's pretty impressive. He's he's great. He's a great guy. Very smart and uh, very small, very small team that managed a lot of money. Incredibly successful. Generated significant significant returns. Uh, I don't know that I I should share them publicly, but let's just say that a lot of people were extremely happy uh, giving their money <laughs> to invest with John. <laughs> I remember uh, interviewing. Uh, he asked me to interview with somebody that was considering relocating from New York and, and when wanted and heard about Kleinheinz and, and his investment uh, group. And, and he said, you know, I hear about John and, and he, you know, John made all his money in RIM, uh, which used to make these, uh, handheld devices, uh, research in motion wasn't in the company. He made all his money in there. And then he made all his money in Flashnet and he made all his money in Apple and he made, said, 
the one constant was he made all his money. <laughs> so I, I need to come. I need to come talk to him. Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with that picture exactly? Exactly. <laughs> the common denominator. So, one thing you you mentioned um, that I think probably is you know has influenced your your thought pattern around investing and and certainly the the sixty eight percent number you mentioned. What did it feel like in 1994 to have this plan? And then by virtue of nothing that you could have controlled, you have half the money that you thought you had. Yeah, at that point, um, you know, you're young and, and young and dumb. So so you just realize what you don't have. But, but one of the, I think in a way, it was a defining moment of, of, of my character to say, you want to do something. Sometimes you have to pivot and figure out a, a different way to get there, but you still have the goal in mind. And, and you know, luckily, uh, th- there were other roads that led to Rome, so to speak, uh, starting with uh, a local university, great renowned university uh, in an evening program where I could keep my job and continue to save for, for the second part of my business school education. And that anyway, so yeah, I think it's just, you know, th- there will always be curves thrown at you sure. in, in life, in business, in, uh, and, and you just have to deal with them and, and figure out a way to get to your destination in the best possible way. You mentioned you were there and then you, for your later half of business school, you came up to Berkeley. What were some of the, one, some of the challenges you ran into coming to Berkeley, you know, and maybe coming from a different, a different culture? Was there anything there? Like what were, tell us about that experience because, you know, as we were talking before the podcast, I've heard it from my fiance and coming to the United States and being in Mexico and Germany our whole life. So we'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, I can, I can go deep, but let me start light. Uh, the, the first thing that was an eye opener, you can imagine Mexico. Uh, it's very cosmopolitan, Mexico City, and I was doing relatively okay for a young twenty-some-year-old. And but at the same time, I was living on a budget, right? Because I was saving for for school. And and I, I showed up to my second year of business school literally three days before uh, school started. I had a place to live. I rented a car, and I mean the the cultural shock. Even though I had previously lived and studied in the U.S. briefly, like exchange student, so this is literally over the weekend, and on Monday I need a report to to my first class. And coming from the evening program in Mexico City, cosmopolitan uh, city, uh, to Berkeley, and I was the only person in business school wearing slacks, socks, a button-down shirt. Not even the professors were, were <laughs> professors wearing, you know, like. Sperry topsiders or something or flip-flops, shorts and, and t-shirts. So like, okay, this is different. It didn't take me long to get used to that one. Yeah, it was great. It was just, uh, anyway, that's, that's, like I said, I would, I would start light, but, uh, a lot of other eye opening really, uh, the access to capital and the, the availability of capital. And back then the internet was just going, taking mm-hmm. off. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. You mentioned Rafa and, you know, anybody in, in business that, that has a partner, I mean, that's, you know, that's a key ingredient to the success or the failure of that partnership. So talk about the maturation of that relationship, the building of trust, going into business together, convergence of ideas and ideologies that, that develop the, the success you guys have had. Well, anybody that knows Rafa, you know Rafa, but uh, for anybody that doesn't, he's just he's just an incredible person, a great human being. And I think when you are fortunate enough to be partners with an exceptional human being, that just lays the foundation for for success, right? Mm-hmm. For for if nothing else, to have mutual respect and 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 understanding. And there are challenges, but you know, if you if you have a a good piece of wood you can you can figure something out and so i am consider myself incredibly blessed to to have uh found him or for for our paths to have crossed and become business partners uh we're very different um i would say i'm much more of a risk taker he's much more conservative and i think in business that's good right you don't right. want a part, both partners in a in a partnership thinking the same way um 
So it, it, it worked out great. It worked out uh, very, very good. We, we've had fun. I was going to ask, because always in the good partnerships like that, there's some good fights that happen too. How's the, uh, you know, has there been some rocky points along the road that have brought you closer to? I think when we have had some rocky points, it's typically not between him and I. It's it's more, it, it's a difficult situation where, again, luckily the, the, the character of the people there rises to the occasion and you're able to deal with very difficult situations, whether it's in an investment gone wrong or, or a difficult situation for the companies or a financial crisis or, or whatever it may be, it, it becomes, uh, it's just, it's good to have uh, a good partner on the same side of the fight, mm-hmm. uh, sure. on the same side of sure. the of problem. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, I can't say that we've had we've had disagreements. We've had things like he might have wanted to invest, or I wanted to invest, and we couldn't put our heads together. Or you know, sometimes you want a company push the pedal to the metal, go faster, and the other one, you know, no, let's pull the reins back. So, uh, but but never in an argumentative way, just more uh, balance check. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In in looking at the the private equity world today, and you, know, you you likened it back to like, you know, there was telecom and then there was the World Wide Web and what is that going to look like and the dot-com boom and all this access to capital. And, you know, and, and Bob and I see this a lot in, in our work, this massive run to SPACs or DSPAC. Like, talk to us about that environment. Is it sustainable? Is it a fad? Is it a, is it a good idea? When where is it headed? Wow. Um, I should say that's definitely not my area of expertise uh, and that and stop there. But I guess I know enough to be dangerous. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of capital at, out there. And the SPACs are uh, almost like a free option for that capital to look at some provocative business opportunities or deals and yeah. and when you buy into a SPAC you still can basically not approve the deal at the end of the day and 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 get your money out and so I understand why uh, it became so hot I think that the, the litmus test is going to be where that money is ultimately put to work and the valuations at which that money is put to work and 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 that's where the manager the quality of the manager is going to be very important right the people that ultimately have the decision over the the deal or the acquisition that that SPAC uh, will uh, enter into uh, are going to be like everything. There are going to be some great successes. There are going to be some great failures, and so you just need to be selective and make sure you 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 get in bed with the with the right people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob, and you work with a lot of private equity um, clients. I mean, any questions you have around maybe like how you structure a deal or how you're looking at it or dive into some of your due diligence questions there. Yeah, no, it's always interesting because I always, you know, then I get down that route and rabbit hole and I, I love to go down that conversation path, Michael, as you know, because I like I work with a lot of different firms in the private equity space and everybody's kind of got their different their different views around how they like to invest, where they like to put their money, what some of their key, what I'll call like core values are around when they're looking at maybe a management team or something like that. So one of the things I'd ask you is like, you know, when you think about how you're investing in organizations, what are those kind of couple key attributes that you say, these are like must-haves before we even start looking at this thing seriously? Yeah, the, the, the without a question, the, the top one is the quality of the, of the management team, the integrity of the management team. Uh, you know, the experience has to be there, has to be relevant to the type of business opportunity you're pursuing. But, you know, what's interesting, and I think I'm not alone here in this private equity or venture capital world, is you can do a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of due diligence, a lot of asking around, a lot of vetting of those uh, managers, of those uh, really entrepreneurs or executives that are running these organizations and and every time you invest is because you get comfortable you think you've done you've checked all the boxes and there are always surprises always mm-hmm. so uh that that is the most important thing and even though that's the one that you spend the most time on 
it still uh, it still surprises you often uh, more more times than you would like. Every time that happens, I was just going to ask you know because one of, one of the things we're seeing these days, at least in in the world that we live in, is the speed at which some of these deals mm-hmm. are done, and you know. I'm not going to question how someone in a private equity firm goes to go do their deals. Everybody's got their own way to do it. When you see these auction processes and these deals need to be signed, sealed, and delivered in 30 days, I mean, do you do you get fearful that, you know, you talk about the management team and the integrity, how do you get to know them in 30 days? Yeah, no, I, I, I can't answer that question. That's, that's not something we, we invest in. That's not our style. We are typically looking for opportunities where, where many times there isn't a book. It's not a, if it's an auction, we may take a look just to make sure we're not uh, missing on something really good, but 99% of the time, we're just not going to be there with the final LOIs or expression of interests. Um, the type of private equity that we invest in is, is really earlier stage than most of these really fast and furious deals mm-hmm. that you're referring to, uh, where, where bigger private equity shops are really more at that point, in my, in my opinion, doing more financial engineering on those opportunities and how much leverage they can put and then how quickly they can refinance to get some of their money back. And, and Hey, it works. They're very successful. They, they produce a lot of singles and doubles and, and that's fine. But I think our, our approach and my, my, interest, frankly, is more, I'm more of an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm, I like to see things happen and grow and develop. And, and there's a lot of reward, even in some of our investments that have done well, but not great from an IRR standpoint, there's still great success stories. There's still great growth stories. The IRRs may have been high single digits or low double digits because it took a while to to get them to an exit and to a realization but they're still great i mean you developed a great company you developed a management team you grew a company from 14 million in uh initial assets uh to multi-billion dollar assets uh and Along the way, many things happen, but it's there's still a, a great a great amount of satisfaction in seeing those babies develop and and becoming productive things. That's a good point um, because you can you can forget the kind of the key ingredients to get you there, right? Are there any ones you know looking back on this successful career that you've had, and we'll we'll jump into your your next career in wine in just <laughs> a second, but. Um, I mean, maybe pick one or two for our listeners and, and really that, that that you are the most proud of, that maybe you didn't see it coming or it was that that key learning experience that, that took it from an idea to a successful exit, or maybe even it's something that you're, you're, you're still a part of or holding on to. Yeah, so I mentioned this one. It's a combination of uh, almost everything you, you mentioned in the question. I mentioned our interest in investing in companies, not only that could service the consumer opportunity and the Hispanic opportunity, but also do it in a good way in a, I guess the term these days is ESG, but you know, in a sustainable and responsible way. So one of the best, one of the things we, we identified were that these uh, Hispanic uh, people, very generally speaking, are hardworking, are loyal, they keep a job, they want to build a home, they want to they want to grow roots. Uh, sometimes they're legal, sometimes not, but they still have uh, their best interest. They want to create a family. They're young. They want to build a home, but they didn't have access to financing. So one of the areas we identified early on was the mortgage market and financing these hardworking people that didn't necessarily qualify for a traditional loan to buy their first home and give them an opportunity to own a, a property uh, without getting raped in the process mm-hmm. by some of these shark lenders or people that sure. are uh, yeah. giving them financing in a way, basically f- setting them up for failure right. because of the interest rates are crazy or they don't really have ownership. It's more like a lease agreement. And so anyway, we, we identified this opportunity in the financial services. We identified a team that was providing these mortgage loans and we, we capitalized uh, the Novo Bank in Houston, in the and literally the first 
The first branch was a tiny building in the south side of Houston. Se habla español sign on the on the door, and and what we wanted is to take these people from uh, paying a sharky loan interest rates to owning a house and give them a, a decent uh, financing, and and that went again not without headaches, but that that was that proven to be a great asset class and a great opportunity. It came with other challenges, you know. Mo- all these people want to borrow money, but they don't necessarily have a lot of savings to put in the in the other side of the balance sheet of the bank. So we had to figure out a way to to make ends meet. But and, and again, not without headaches. The the cap the management that we thought we we were backing was great up to a certain level of development, but then uh, it turned out to be that they weren't the right horse to ride to the next stage of development. So you have to uh, change management, never easy, never without drama and and threatening remarks. But uh, <laughs> really the, the, the satisfaction of this whole story. And then in the mean, in, in, at the same time, that I'm telling the story, we have the worst financial crisis the United States has ever had in in, the, in its history uh, in back in 2009. So the world changed, the regulatory environment changed. So again, uh, I think my hair was black and I had some more hair back then. But uh, <laughs> so, so I went from like, oh, this is going to be an easy investment. I'll get my monthly reports and banks have to report uh, regularly and to rolling up my sleeves, consider becoming the chairman of the bank, uh, getting on the board, getting much more active, recruiting new management team. Anyway, a lot of headaches along the way. But uh, fast forward to today, and you know we were able to merge with another similar sized bank uh, uh, called Spirit of Texas Bank, and then uh, join the board and, and continue to work with management to to develop the business and uh, made an IPO. Uh, three years ago, and and now that's a viable bank. It's over three billion in assets. It has presence pretty much throughout uh, throughout Texas, uh, with the exception of the of South Texas. Yeah, and yeah, it's 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 it, it took us a lot longer to get there. Uh, so from an IRR standpoint, I, that's a, that's kind of what I was thinking mm-hmm. of. The it may have not been high IRRs, but but to take a fourteen million dollar investment in a in a shell that had a few members in the management team and and turn it into something like that is incredibly rewarding. That is but awesome. Then, but then also like the rewarding aspect of just what you're giving to so many people through that investment, it's just got to feel amazing too. Absolutely. Well, and, and as a, a mission that started out helping people through the finance arm of the bank, now you've got a bank that employs Hundreds of hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. So I mean, you got to over thirty back branches. On. That's amazing. Uh, one of the largest SBA lenders. So we continue to service. We continue to help this consumer, every consumer in Texas, for that matter. But uh, since I brought up the Hispanics, which was the initial focus, one of the largest SBA small business uh, administration loan lo- lenders in the United States. Uh, from this little bank, that yeah, who would have thought so? Yeah, That's so great. Oh, it's just getting, you know, the only thing I was thinking about that was going through my head is, and I think, you know, experiencing that, you know, the fact that I'm, I'm marrying a, a girl from Mexico, Hispanic girl. And, you know, she talks a lot about too, about what you just mentioned, which is like giving back to that community that you so much, you know, obviously deeply care about here in the United States. I was just going to comment that that's one of the things that she's been starting to focus on on how she can give back more and how proud she is of her culture and where she came from and, uh, you know, how much she gives back to the community there. It's, it's just, I love to see that. I love to see people have that that passion and love for, you know, their heritage and where they came from. So I was just going to, you know, more commend you on that than anything. You're a lucky man to be marrying a Mexican woman. I hear that all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and right after I say that, I'll, I'll share something that my grandmother told me. I'm very lucky. I met my wife when she was very young. So, but, but still the wisdom of the grandmother, she said, before you get married, open your eyes wide open. And then after you get married, close them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I love my wife, and but but uh, there there will always be surprises. But but they're they're all good at, at the end of the day. She, and she's got a little fiery personality, <laughs> That's right. as you can imagine. 
stage no, but, advice. But but truly, you're lucky because uh, I, I, that's true for many cultures. But since since we're both married to Mexican women, uh, incredibly devoted to their family, immediate family, and and kind of parents Every, and, and loyalty. everyone that's considered family that's not really family. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, but you know what I mean. They're, 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 yeah. you, you don't because you don't have kids yet. But you know, uh, no. I have so much admiration for 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 women in general, but in mm -hmm. particular for my wife to to be so selfless and 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 give away. You know, she's an industrial engineer by by trade, and and she was working, even though she didn't have to. She she was always working and for her to take a step back and, and really devote her time and her life to, to raising our, our kids uh, is something that I can't, uh, I'm so blessed and I can't thank her enough for. Um, but culturally, uh, sadly, it's, it's not necessarily generally it's not necessarily generally, uh, because there are there. Mexico, as you know, is is very haves and have nots uh, society. I guess to some extent, the U.S. is is somewhat becoming like that. Um, but again, very very lucky that uh, my my parents always taught us to treat people with respect, and and we have people that have worked for our family, and that we have uh, you know they they worked for us for. 35 years and and we helped them build their home and and put their kids through college and uh take help their kids i remember teaching my nanny how to read hmm. and, wow. and she was working for the family and now she's now her kids are college graduates and so uh you just that's a very tiny example of giving back and right. and uh and, and you know i could go on and on about about examples but yeah that that's great that that a lot of the people in Mexico on the haves side of the equation really are looking after the the have-nots and want to give them the best. So that that leads perfectly into the last question I have before we jump into into wine is is back to culture and the have and have-nots. And you're the perfect example of determination, a great family environment the ability to live out your dreams and pursue those. And and Bob, this is for you too, because I think Anais has probably shared some of her feelings. I mean, right now, it's front and center every time you turn on the news with the border crisis is what they like to call it. And it's been going on forever, but there's a heightened sense of awareness around it now and an a influx of people coming across that. I grew up on a farm in Dripping Springs, Texas, where we had seasonal workers that just came through to work. I thought it was just normal. That's just mm. the way that, that things were. Uh, fast forwarding to today and seeing this issue on the border, what are your thoughts around how we collaboratively work together to create a sustainable solution? It's an excellent question. It's a very deep question. It's a very question to answer without uh, being in the hot seat. Mm -hmm. Because as, as you know, in our country is polarized and, uh, and, and, and there are very different viewpoints on, on this subject. But I think, I, I know I'm gonna get in trouble with this, for, but, but you speak your mind. And the, one of the reasons the United States, and by the way, I'm, I'm proud to be an American uh, I, I say, I like to say, uh, I'm Mexican by birth, Texan by choice and American by heart now after becoming <laughs> <That's> a <citizen. really> good. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, my wife and I were, we're fortunate. We have three American kids. We, we, we are U.S. citizens now. And, and one of the things that were, and it all happened during the Trump administration, mm -hmm. right? Cause he got a lot of heat about immigration, this and that and the other. Well, we are a good example that the rhetoric may have been different, but, but it was, open. Mm -hmm. You just had to follow the right process and the right path to become a, per, a you know, legal U.S. citizen. And so I think one of the things that is the most important reasons for the U.S. to be 
the, the power that it is. Uh, the power, not necessarily in a in a financial sense, but in the empowerment sense and the the place for the American dream to mm-hmm. take place and for entrepreneurs to flourish and uh, and and wealth creation, not necessarily financial, but wealth in in many respects in in having your basic needs uh, covered. In my opinion, the biggest reason the United States is is that successful such a success story i could get very philosophical about it because of its uh religious origin but i'm not gonna we can go there if you want but 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 practically or pragmatically speaking the biggest reason is that the rule of law works Mm -hmm. and if a corrupt politician gets caught they don't get away with it. Mm-hmm. In in most other countries, that's not the case. And that rule of law that that punishes the bad guy, so to speak, also rewards the good guy. Mm-hmm. It, it it lets it sets the the same the level playing field for everybody to play in. And so I I mention it in the context of the immigration uh, question you asked, because the laws are what they are right now and i think it's very it's a very slippery road if you start mending the laws to accommodate a certain uh immigration now and i'll stop there because i think you get my point mm-hmm. right it's like if, if the laws says that you cannot cross somebody else's property line right or you're trespassing what difference is that from the border mm-hmm. right now having said that the the difficulty here is that significantly all of the people that have come for the last hundred years at a minimum, but definitely in the last 50 or 60 years, are the best from south of the border. They're the, they're the ones that want to provide more for their family. They're hardworking. They may not be educating, educated, but they, they, want, they, are, they, they are hardworking and they want to work to improve their quality of life. That's the reason they're leaving their, their home country. Right. Again, this is a kind of worms here, but uh, I hope the politicians figure out a way. And, and, and there are programs to allow for those people to come in and work and prove that they're worthy of being a permanent resident or eventually a citizen or or, or what have you. But, but the U.S. should be very welcoming to these uh, individuals that are, again, in, in a way, we're stealing the best from other people. And, and they're filling in jobs that typically are not uh, very popular to 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 begin with. Uh, so, no, that I mean, again, that's that's why Bob and I love doing this podcast. That little snippet into your viewpoint of, in a way, we're stealing some of the best because of their drive or desire to be here. I I never really thought about it like that. So I really appreciate that that viewpoint. That's the last tough question. I promise. <laughs> Uh, so Hugo, you, you've had success in, I'm drinking all of that. You're in not your pri- no, no, that. no, I am in your <laughs> private equity world that allowed possibly, uh, you'll put it into your words, but your pursuit into the wine making business in particular, Panea in Northern Spain, talk about the, how that idea came about and how you brought it to reality. And thank you now have brought it into our homes that we can all enjoy. Oh, thank you. I am just a little jealous. I'm not there in person <laughs> right now. <laughs> we will uh, figure out a way to uh, ask our distributor in Chicago to get you a bottle. There we go. I think based on the conversation we've had earlier today, there's an easy way for me to address that question. And that's, I mentioned growing up in Mexico, going to Berkeley. When I came back to Mexico, I wanted to uh, conquer my girlfriend, now wife, Tanya. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I would have liked to take her with me, but I couldn't afford it. So um, anyway, so I, I, I had a batch pad uh, in Mexico City. Four friends shared a penthouse and, and, and we were living the dream before getting married. And one of those friends, Vicente, and I would uh, often open a nice bottle of wine or we'd go find find a good fancy spot where where we could have a, a very nice dinner and so we we had an affinity for wine and and I still remember when I first tried one of the really 
high quality wines from Rivera del Duero and it just captured me. It was like, wow, this is what a good wine should taste like. And, and so to make a very long story short, uh, I mentioned I came to Texas 21 years ago to follow my, my career in private equity and Vicente, uh, is a few years younger than I am, but he, again, not to get into too many details, but he followed his passion to be in the wine making world and, uh, bought a boutique winery in Spain, um, moved his wife and three daughters across the Atlantic. So if that doesn't, uh, speak commitment, I don't know what does and started doing the wine thing. And we, you know, as friends and past roommates, we, we, we kept in touch Tanya, my wife and I would visit him for harvest party and he wanted to produce something really special, a really high quality wine. And that's where my years peaked mm-hmm. and, and my interest arose. And so we, we started talking more and, and again, it's a, it's a long story. And the bottom line is that he had an opportunity to buy an incredible piece of land with vineyards that had been producing grapes for some of the best producers in Spain for generations. And, uh, and at the same time, Spain was going through a very difficult economic time. Um, it was coming off 30% unemployment. If you think of how bad unemployment wow. is in the U.S. right now in high single digits, imagine 30% unemployment in 2015 or 16, mm-hmm. I can't remember. So it was, a. I kind of put my private equity hat on and, and I said, wow, it'd be great to be in the wine business. It's something I've always wanted to do, but. I'm not old enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money to <laughs> to do it. But to buy this terroir, as it's known in the wine world, these these vineyards, over 90 years of age, uh, not all of them, but but a, a good portion of them are over 90 years of age, and and to have a trusted partner, somebody I literally shared uh, a, a, an apartment with uh, at some point, and and to do it, it just I, I'm a firm believer in. God and doing mm-hmm. what he, what we're doing his work. Uh, we're just the hands and the bodies that make it work. So I prayed a lot and, and, and we just, I said, all right, let's, let's, let's do it. This is just a great opportunity, but at the same time, because of the Spanish economy and the unemployment and the, the we were able to find, to, to buy these acreage at a very attractive price. Or I convinced myself, I, time, <laughs> time will tell, I convinced myself that it, it was, it was a good time to do it. And, uh, and, and at that point, the wine is in a barrel. Uh, you, you don't know, you taste it and you think it's going to be good. And, uh, and the, yeah, as, as luck would have it, uh, fast forward to 2017, we, we put the wine in a barrel, in a, in a bottle and we developed a label. Uh, you mentioned Pinead, uh, Pinea, uh, as, uh, as it's pronounced here, P-I-N-E-A. That's the, the name that we decided. Because there's this beautiful pine tree, it's over 500 years old. It's it's wow. gigantic, and it's a symbol of what we aspire, right? It's a symbol of uh, we want to be the best wine from Rivera del Duero, hopefully one of the best wines in the world. And in 2017, we put it in the bottle, we release it to the market, and as luck would have it, professional golfer from Spain wins the Masters tournament in 2017, Sergio Garcia. And growing up in Fort Worth, not growing up, living in Fort Worth for the last 20 years. Uh, and I'm a member at Shady Oaks Country Club, which is where Ben Hogan uh, right. used to play golf. So Ben Hogan started this tradition at the Masters, known as the Champions Dinner, where defending champion hosts all former champions for dinner uh, when he's the defending uh, champion. And so um, I reached out to Sergio and his team, and I said, hey, I want you to consider this wine for for the champion's dinner on April of 2018. And, and as luck would have it, he loved the wine. Oh he loved it so much that he, he served our second label. Uh, it's called 17. Mm-hmm. It honors the year 2017, which is a very important year for us because we were releasing our, our flagship to the market. He served that at his wedding, uh, with, uh, American and TCU, uh, golfer, uh, Angela Aikins. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it just put us on the radar uh, uh, and and literally the best restaurants in the world started literally the number one restaurant in the world called and said, Hey, we'd like, we'd like to taste your wine. Would you please show it to us? We're like, absolutely. So yeah, it just became, uh, we always had this purpose to produce one of the best wines in the world. We just got incredibly lucky and incredibly blessed to, to have 
the right vineyards, a passionate partner, Vicente that that just loves to be in the in in the vineyard, and that's where eighty percent of these wines are made are in the vineyard. We recruited one of the best winemakers in Spain, and and as luck would have it, to to be able to make a dent in the in the minds and the in the mindshare of wine enthusiasts all over the world to for them to to want to try it and and then after they try it the wine takes over right so i i don't even like to talk about the wine because the wine does all the talking right <laughs> as a good wine should well we will definitely with with your permission of course uh include uh information on this podcast of where people can go find you and and more about your wine and and order some because it um i'm very blessed to have tried many of them with you and it uh it's an experience so thank thank you you for bringing it to us thank you my pleasure um i know we're we're coming up on the the tail end of the podcast here um and bob i told you this was going to be too much to unpack in one episode so we're going to have to have hugo back yeah we're going to have to have number two on this and i'm coming to fort worth because (laughs) there you go i need to come i think i'm gonna have to do it in person We'll have a whole wine dinner, but Hugo, we always end the uh, the podcast with a, a a kind of a theme that we've been running, which is the the saying that it's not what you know, it's who you know. But then we turn it around and say it's not who you know, it's who knows you. So if you think about this podcast as a medium to capture your story, and whether this is a message to your to your wife that you've known since I think she was in first grade, you said, or your kids, or Rafa, or any of your business partners, like what do you want? people to know about you? I think that the people that I would want to reach out to already know me. And I was at a function with my wife uh, a couple of nights ago, actually, a fundraiser for ACE scholarships. Our host asked that the wife introduce the husband and the husband introduced the wife. And and it put a smile on my face to hear her introduce me because, you know, I think as, as, as husbands, we always love our, our our partner and lifelong partner and friends and 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 what have you but but she said if you don't know Hugo you want him to be your friend mm-hmm. and 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 I think she she really thought about that answer and and it speaks volumes I think the I'm not a very social person I, I love hanging out with people but you know we're all busy and work and school and kids and sporting activities and what have you but but uh I think the people that know me, I hope the people that know me uh, know that, that, mm-hmm. that I can be the best friend and I hope my, my kids and wife feel the same way. I think, I think they do. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's wonderful. Fantastic. Well, having known you um, for a little while now, I would say that, that I would add to that. You have a very calming and infectious effect on people that you just... You leave going, you know, I'd like to spend some more time with him. So thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. Look forward to the episode two. We're definitely doing a a part two to this one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode. To learn more about the wine mentioned on today's episode of The Climb, please visit www.pinea.wine. That's P-I-N-E-A dot W-I-N-E. Or follow them on social media at pinea.wine.